Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, July 19th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, extreme heat advisories issued for some counties in the state. Hospitals are continuing to lay off employees, cut services, or shut down. Plus, a shortage of lifeguards and folks trained to perform CPR. It's heightening concerns during this hot summer. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Record high temperatures sweeping across the nation. Now some parts of Mississippi are under extreme heat advisories. Joining us live is David Cox. He's chief meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Jackson. David, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. You're with the National Weather Service in Jackson. Tell us, what does an extreme heat advisory mean? Uh, Well, uh, right now uh, we have excessive heat uh, warnings and uh, heat advisories across the state. And that basically means that there's going to be an extended period of temperatures, uh, combinations of temperatures and humidity that can reach dangerous levels. And so we are anticipating that over the next several days. Um, so uh, as mentioned before, across the central to western parts of the state, uh, we do have excessive heat warning, which is uh, basically heat, heat indices in excess of 110 degrees uh, for an extended period of time. And uh, that leads to more potential for a heat stroke becomes increasingly likely with prolonged uh, activity outside. And um, the heat advisories are above 105 degrees, uh, but just below 110, which basically means heat exhaustion is more likely. Uh, But long story short is that it's it's definitely going to be hot the next few days. Uh, It's definitely dangerous. So we definitely take precautions, uh, limiting your time outdoors as much as possible. Uh, make sure to drink plenty of fluids, uh, wear light-colored clothing uh, as much as you can. When you talk about extreme heat, what's the range of temperatures? Well, right now the uh, range of temperatures is going to be in the mid to upper 90s uh, across the state. And is there, like... I can't remember what town, but one town in Mississippi is supposed to have a high of 99. Are we going to cross over into triple digits? It's definitely possible uh, that we could reach near triple digits. Uh, That's definitely possible. What parts of the state are more likely to feel the threat of extreme heat? Really the entire state. Uh, The entire state's under 
under the uh, potential to have uh, extreme heat with the worst uh, portions of it across the central to western parts of the state. There are people who work outside and they do roofing, road work, whatever it may be, landscaping. What are you recommending for folks who have to earn a living, have to be outside? Sure, sure. That's completely understandable. I definitely... Um, if you can, as much as possible, limit time, uh, what time you are outdoors, but definitely drink plenty of fluids and wear light color clothing. Uh, that definitely will help uh, limit some of your uh, potential uh, for these more the heat illness uh, that, that definitely we're concerned about. Okay. Are they supposed to take quick breaks? Extended breaks? What's a time frame? How would you instruct them if you were speaking with them? You definitely would need to uh, take as many breaks as you can um, whenever possible. Um, the longer the breaks and more uh, hydrated you are, uh, the less likely of uh, heat illness. Can you explain what's causing this heat? Yes, there's very strong high pressure uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, it's centered over uh, southwestern United States, and that is um, moving to the east. Uh, across into our area, which is bringing uh, warm temperatures that are uh, supportive of uh, this dangerous heat. In addition, all of the recent rains that we've had over this past uh, summer, that has actually increased the heat potential because there's a lot of moisture uh, right at the ground level. Uh, that's combination the heat and humidity has made it uh, definitely very dangerous. You mentioned the humidity. What effect does the humidity have on the temperatures and the feel-like aspect? Yes, uh, as the humidity stays uh, somewhat higher, uh, that's the combination of the temperature and humidity, uh, the temperature and dew point, uh, have a direct impact on what those uh, real feel uh, parent temperatures are. So the heat indices are uh, the higher the amount of moisture that you have at ground level combined with how high the temperatures get is where you have dangerous heat concerns. All right. And just for folks who may be wondering about danger signs, what should they be looking for? Uh, You definitely um, could have um, a lot more uh, potential for uh, heat exhaustion and uh, heat stroke. So, uh, there, there definitely are uh, some warning signs of um, you could uh, moral weakness, and um, so you, you definitely just need to um, keep an eye on yourself. If if you notice any uh, anything out of the norm, uh, you definitely need to make sure to take breaks and uh, drink plenty of fluid. All right, David Cox with the National Weather Service in Jackson. Thank you so much for speaking with us about this. Sure, you're very welcome. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. What are the cool kids wearing nowadays? A bucket hat and fanny pack. I meant to say a belt bag. That's the 21st century name for it. 
you can get this MPB branded swag package by making a one-time $60 contribution. You'll also receive a year of PBS Passport to stream new and classic shows. A mix of current and classic. That's Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Make a contribution today at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Hospitals across Mississippi are facing a crisis as wages are increasing for staff. The cost of supplies are surging while revenues are stagnant. Lawmakers did send several million dollars in relief to rural hospitals this year, but experts say it's not enough. We speak with Ryan Kelly, executive director of the Mississippi Rural Health Association. There's the generic and the, and the specific terms for rural health care, and I'll use them in different times in different ways. So uh, the, the generic is simply saying that uh, rural health care is health care delivered in rural areas doesn't matter what facility type it is, what their reimbursement structure is, just simply it's delivering health care in a rural community, a rural area of the state. Then there's the formal program that would be more of like your rural health clinics, your critical access and rural hospitals, all of which have very specific reimbursement rates that provide what, what we call parity, uh, or some might even call it in the, in the more modern term equity where these facilities would not be able to survive given the demographics or meaning the, the number of patients that they would see on a daily basis. They wouldn't be able to survive in a normal fee-for-service market. But given the parity or the increased payments that they receive for those services, they are able to survive and or sometimes do well. However, that is becoming less and less frequent right now because those same systems that exist to help create that equity are, in some cases, failing to do so. Because rural is already smaller with less of a profit margin, when you start cutting and cutting and cutting, now all of a sudden you take something that becomes maybe not the best value in the world for someone investing, but they they see the value in that community and wanting to serve. And now all of a sudden you go from making a little bit of money to losing a little bit of money, or in some cases losing a lot of money. And now you no longer can sustain that entity that was designed by that formalized rural designation to be able to survive. So are these federal funds, state funds, a mix of both? A mix of both. Um, uh, a good bit of it is federal. It, it really de- it depends. L- let me take a rural health clinic, for instance. A rural health clinic is a uh, primary care clinic that is designed to exist in a rural area, primarily to be run by a mid-level providers. Primarily in Mississippi, they're run by nurse practitioners. And so those clinics are designed to be a little more cost-efficient, uh, but are designed to be a kind of a critical access, if you will, for primary care. Uh, and then those clinics, by their reimbursement, are paid what's called an all-inclusive rate. So there's a whole bunch of unsundry different uh, reasons someone could come into the doctor, and that clinic will receive the same dollar amount for any of those different services, and they have to provide minimum level of a whole bunch of different services, uh, and then they will be paid the same all-inclusive rate. And so that all-inclusive rate is specific to Medicare and Medicaid, hence the state or federal dollars. Uh, Medicare obviously is entirely federally funded, and then Medicaid is a mixture of state and federal. 
uh, and then both of those will have their different all-inclusive rates that they will pay for those services. Mississippi actually does pay pretty well for Medicaid compared to many other states, but uh, that is more or less how these rural health clinics are funded, and they do well uh, based on this funding. And so they kind of balance the scales, if you will, to make sure that clinics are able to, to survive even in very critically rural areas. And looking uh, at hospitals, hospitals they are saying uncompensated care, the high cost of wages, salaries, the increase in the cost of equipment, and the lack of expanding Medicaid coverage has left them closing labor units, closing ERs, and offering minimal services that they can provide, that they can afford to provide. Right. Uh, And I think that's an accurate statement. So uh, the hospitals, especially critical access hospitals, are a little bit of the same of of rural health clinics, but the hospitals themselves, critical access hospitals, function on a cost-reporting basis. Rural, um, Rural PPS hospitals focus on a different model that is beneficial to them, but not uh, based on the cost reporting. Cost reporting is simply uh, how much their cost is, and then they would theoretically make critical access hospitals, that is, 101% of their cost. So they would make 1%. However, one of the biggest things and one of the first things that really hurt our critical access hospitals in particular, but really all healthcare, is sequestration. Uh, Back 10, 12 years ago, Back when the uh, House and the Senate couldn't decide uh, what color the sky is, but they then decided if they can't make the budget match, uh, then they would uh, cut 2% off of the board for all federal services. Well, that was called sequestration, and that has hit all health care very, very hard. In the state? In the country. And so that 101% of reimbursement for critical access hospitals now went down to about 99% plus other various cuts and things that have happened since then. So you went from a hospital that was designed to make 1% to now a hospital that is, at best case, going to lose about 1%, and you start running into a very big situation, a very difficult situation for them. So that is one of many reasons why our hospitals are struggling right now. There have been, as I mentioned, various other cuts. Mental and Behavioral Health Services recently have had I believe, a 3% cut to uh, many of their different services. Uh, Many of these are federal cuts. Some of them are are related to Medicaid, but most of them are federal cuts. Uh, Then you get into the commercial side. Commercial insurance is not as widely used in rural health care. I want to say the average I saw ranges from 10 to about 30% of the claims from rural health care being commercial. So uh, commercial does pay generally very well compared to Medicare or Medicaid but they still have had a number of issues that our hospitals are facing right now, down codes, denials, audits that are taking up a lot of time. Medicare is also very bad about doing audits. So I guess if I, if I had to sum up the issues with our hospitals, the payment mechanisms alone are becoming a major problem for them. And it's a very tough thing to balance when you're already kind of short on staff because, again, you're a small hospital. You don't have teams and teams of people that can claw through every regulation, build everything exactly up to code, which some claims might have 10 or more codes attached to them that are being filed. And if any T is not crossed or I dotted, then they may be denied, and then you're having to fight for the money you do deserve 
because some arbitrary person in an insurance company, whether Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance, said, hey, we don't like this. We're going to deny it, and we're going to make you fight for it. And that's an issue not just for rural. That's an issue for all hospitals and, and in some cases, all health care together. Brian Kelly is executive director of the Mississippi Rural Health Association. In part two of our conversation with Kelly... I see both sides of Medicaid expansion. I am in support of it, as our association is. However, I can't say that the lack of Medicaid expansion is the problem because we've never had Medicaid expansion. So it's not the problem, but it is a solution. That's tomorrow. Coming up next, there's a lifeguard shortage during one of the hottest summers in state history. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. There's a growing shortage of lifeguards across the nation, and some community pools are shutting down until vacancies can be filled. And in Jackson, several pools are closed in what is becoming one of the hottest summers on record. Jackson resident Heath Seawright is one of a few lifeguards working at the Briarwood Pool. He tells our Lacey Alexander about this shortage. We've had to hire a few people halfway through just because we don't have enough hands. Um, Sometimes, honestly, it does feel like I'm a little overworked just because we don't have that many people that can take up the shifts. But, I mean, I'm okay with that because, like I said, I'm a little overworked, but also I get paid more simply because not as many people want to do it. So we're in Jackson. It's a million degrees out here. Everybody wants to come to the pool right now because it's so hot. Why is it important for you guys to have lifeguards more than ever right now? I mean, obviously it's really hot and, you know, heat... It can cause some issues with people, health issues, and, you know, we're trained to respond to all those kind of issues, you know, especially, like you said, it's as hot as it is in Jackson. A lot of people come to the pool, so it can get really busy, and honestly, the more people you have, the more risks you run. In a place like Jackson, as hot as it is, you get more and more people, and you would need more and more lifeguards, but we just simply don't have that. Right. So because you guys need more people, has, like, the training, has that slowed down? Is that different now that y'all need more people more desperately or no? No, because the training is done through, uh, or at least we do it through the Red Cross, and it's generally the same for everyone. I would say it is a little rigorous. I could see why it would be discouraging because it's like a three-day thing when you do it for the first time. Um, But honestly, it's really rewarding to do. Like, it teaches basic rescuing skills that even you can use outside of lifeguarding. You learn CPR. You learn all those kind of, like, how to respond to scrapes, bruises, that kind of thing that, you know, you kind of need to know in general. And not only that, you know, they kind of teach you there how to be a leader for others. And because, like, being a head guard like I am, I have to also help the other lifeguards out who are newer. So, I mean, it teaches a lot of good skills on its own. There are three primary locations where lifeguards work, parks, local pools, and open waters, and each have unique challenges. Wyatt Warneth is national spokesperson for the American Lifeguard Association, and he says the chance of drowning when a lifeguard is present are one in 18 million. So not having lifeguards present in some of these locations could result in a situation where people are finding themselves going into 
water to cool off when there's no lifeguards and possibly more drownings. If you know why, kind of explain to us about why we may be seeing a lifeguard shortage right now across the country. Well, you know, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, back when I became a lifeguard, uh, Baywatch was on TV. It was really popular. It was kind of a, a lifestyle everybody wanted. They admired the beautiful people, the helicopters, the fast boats, and that you were saving lives. So we used to have at one point two people or 100 people would show up for two positions, and only two people would be selected. And it was very prestigious. It was an um, amazing job. I actually was fortunate enough to, to retire from being a lifeguard. So I think that there's just been a lack of interest and there's been a, a movement, if you will, towards more of the technological type jobs. You know, you see a lot of people, uh, influencers are, I guess, in that arena. You have, um, you know, IT professionals, different things where people just aren't getting out and doing the physical jobs that they used to do. However, I say that you still have like CSI, Chicago Fire. You have these shows that are very appealing to people and they become police and they become fire and even in the military. But you don't have anything inviting or showing a glamorous lifestyle in lifeguarding. And I think that might be one of our largest contributors to the fact that there's just a lack of interest. And, Wyatt, do you think it's a safety concern for these potential employees, possibly? Well, I mean, it is a very high-risk job. It's, it should be recognized alongside fire, police, EMS. We go into harm's way to save others, just like they do. The biggest difference in lifeguarding is we consider a dry lifeguard a great lifeguard, because if you're doing your job and you're doing pre-water detection, victim recognition, and you're stopping people before they get into harm's way, you don't have to go out into the waters and save people. Unlike police, fire, and EMS, they respond to a 911 call and the accident's already happened. A great lifeguard doing a very good job is one that doesn't let people get into harm's way. So it's very unique. And I think that America needs to recognize and maybe reevaluate the way they look at lifeguarding and present that in a better package, providing people a career path forward, make it a career designated job, not just a summer job. So, I mean, it's just like, you know, the other agencies I mentioned, police, fire, EMS, you have to have a sense of uh, heroism to want to do the job. You want to save people and help people. So, sure, it has an element of um, danger, but I don't think that's what's deterring people. They're still going into fire, police, EMS, and military, and that's dangerous. Like we've been talking about, we do have this shortage uh, for Mississippians, main, mainly young Mississippians, who go to a swimming area where a lifeguard isn't present. What is your advice to those people to stay safe? Well, you know, safety around water kind of starts at the home level, the family level. Uh, everyone should know how to swim. Learn to swim, America. The next thing is that the family members should all look after one another. You, you know there's someone in your group adult or child that doesn't know how to swim, make sure they're wearing a Coast Guard-approved life jacket. Then let's go a step further. Even if you're in an area where there's lifeguards, assign a water watcher, someone that's accountable and takes note of where the family members are and no distractions. That's their job. They're kind of your family lifeguard. So it kind of goes back to the homegrown environment. We need to take care of one another and watch out for our own. Other than that, if you do find yourself in an area, do some research. The area that you're used to going to, where you're, you're, they're, the lifeguard's always been there, make sure they're still there. Because with over 309,000 parks and pools 
half of them are either closing or reducing hours. So you want to do your research before you show up on that vacation and find out you don't have a lifeguard. Now, in the event that you do go somewhere, again, and you have a water watcher present, if you do find yourself having to go into the water, you want to take a flotation device, a boogie board, a surfboard, something that floats. You do not want to go out into the water. We don't encourage people to try to go in to rescue someone without being properly trained. But we do find that, you know, moms and dads do jump into the water. But make sure you have a flotation device. That's going to help you have a stable condition in the water to get that person and yourself out. This has been Mississippi Edition. Have a good day.